Welcome to episode 5 of the Think Wildlife podcast. Today I will be interviewing Ed Arnett. He is currently the CEO of the Wildlife Society, one of the oldest and most prestigious wildlife conservation groups from the United States of America. So welcome, Ed. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. My first question is, could you just give a bit of history about uh, the, the Wildlife Society as an organization? Sure. And it's probably worth just a little bit of history, Anish. Um, you know, our profession started back in, um, you know, the early 1930s. And I think most people around the world have heard of Aldo Leopold. If you're working in conservation, if you haven't, uh, I would suggest Googling Aldo Leopold and looking that up and certainly reading his famous uh, book, Sand County Almanac. But Leopold is uh, widely considered the father of wildlife management wrote the first book on wildlife management in 1933. It was called Game Management. At the time, there was a lot of emphasis on game species. And he became the first professor of wildlife management. And where I'm kind of going with this is the profession was developing and a handful of individuals got together, including Leopold, in 1935 and developed the idea of putting together a journal uh, for this growing profession, but also contemplated the idea of a, a professional society. And so in 1936, that all happened at the very first North American Wildlife Conference. It was then called the North American Wildlife Conference. Now it's called the Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference. And that happened in 1936 in Washington, D.C. And it was then called the Society for Wildlife Professionals. Um, Society of Wildlife Professionals, I think. And then in 1937, at the second annual uh, wildlife uh, conference in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, it was formally uh, entitled the Wildlife Society in 1937. So, and that's when we started the Journal of Wildlife Management. So that's kind of the, the brief history of the development of the society. And so we've been going on, on uh, a lot of years now. Uh, so what's your long-term vision for the society? Um, so, you know, the vision of the society, it's probably changed a little bit over, over the years, but um, we, we want to be a strong and effective voice in representing wildlife conservation and management and ensuring sustainable populations. And thus our mission is to inspire, enable, and empower wildlife professionals to do their job and that is to sustain habitats and, and populations over through science-based management and conservation. My own, uh, my visions of uh, where I'd like to see the Wildlife Society go, and I'm a very strong traditionalist in the sense that I don't like um, throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. We want to keep what's good and what's been working, but we want to look to the future and I think we've got a lot of challenges that need to be addressed in maybe a different manner as society is is changing. But, you know, my long-term vision is to help enable our, our up-and-coming wildlife professionals, um, provide training and opportunities for all wildlife professionals to deal with today's challenges. I think we've got a lot of opportunity to grow in the policy arena um, mainly here in North America, but but globally as well through partnerships. And we can maybe talk about that a little bit later. But we want to be a strong voice in policy. We are a science-based organization and can be leaders in informing 
policy, but I think we've got some opportunities to grow there, but also outreach to the public as well as uh, the broader conservation community. And I know some of your uh, questions later talk about that outreach component. And I think we can work with our part with various partner groups to get that message out um, and increase part of that's increasing diversity in the profession. People, a lot of people don't even know you can do this for a living. But I also think having an informed public is really important. And the Wildlife Society needs to be part of creating more ecologically literate citizens through our partnerships that can get to school kids as, as well as, um, as folks that aren't in the profession, but make them understand and appreciate conservation and why it should be important to them. What role do you think the youth have in tackling the wildlife and climate crisis? So I think when, when we think about youth um, and how they can help with biodiversity and the climate crisis, you know, if we think about it as terms of non-professional wildlife conservationists, all you have to do is think of uh, the young lady from um, uh, uh, Greta, I can never remember her last name, but her activism on climate change and bringing the attention to the, the, the globe, really, that this is her generation uh, that is going to suffer the consequences of our current action. So I think youth and their voice have, an, have absolutely have a critical role in bringing to the attention of those of us that actually have some, some influence, uh, potential to influence uh, the biodiversity and climate crises. In terms of our, you know, our emerging professionals, our students and emerging professionals, they are the future. Um, and it's going to be in part their job to tackle some of these crises that we're currently dealing with today. And also partly their job to help bring on their the next generation of conservationists, whether that be professional wildlife biologists and scientists or just an informed literate public. So I'm 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 big on getting into the space of 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 youths and and getting them engaged in conservation because they can have a voice and ultimately if they choose this to be a career they can be a real influencer uh, in in wildlife conservation or even if they're not if they are what I call an ecologically literate citizen they can become donors or or um, they could become sponsors or advocates in other ways that are very effective in helping us deal with these crises. Do you think there's enough focus on environmental literacy in, in schools and other educational institutions? Yeah, that one's um, a little challenging for me to directly address. I, I, I obviously don't know all of the curricula, but I suspect that there's opportunity to improve. Um, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of high schools uh, around around the United States anyway are, are teach are at least integrating the concepts of conservation into their biology programs. Some have actual programs. I don't know the breadth of that, but I also do know that a lot of my friends that have their doctorate degrees or master's degrees in wildlife or, some sort of um, of of, uh, of conservation background, or actually, pre, uh, not preschool, uh, middle school and and high school teachers. So they're going to be direct champions of getting that information to them. I think the opportunity here, um, and when we're talking school curriculums, I'm thinking you're 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 talking not college. Um, 
college is a different level. Obviously, there are entire departments and programs centered around wildlife science and conservation. But I think that, you know, it all starts with with uh, certainly at the middle school and high school levels to get people excited about conservation and interested. And some of those folks will go on to some of those kids will go on to be uh, to be to be professional conservationists. And some will just be literate and, and appreciative of conservation and and vote and advocate in, in different ways. Moving on to the conservation education and outreach working group of the Wildlife Society. What what does this group focus on and how is it trying to increase public outreach? Yeah, so this is a working group. The Wildlife Society is structured such that we have 237 organizational units, and that includes our state chapters. Um, we are I'm, I'm the CEO of the Wildlife Society. We, we have a number of names for it. Uh, some call it international, some call it the headquarters, but uh, we just call it the Wildlife Society. Um, so I have a I have a bunch of staff that work for me, 14, uh, 15 people that work under under uh, under under the 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 broader program of the Wildlife Society. But then we have state chapters and sections which have officers and such. And then we have working groups. So just a little bit of a, a context around these working groups. And we have a wide range of working groups from biometrics to uh, early career professionals. And in this case, your question centering on uh, conservation education and outreach working group. Um, this is a working group and all of our working groups kind of provide that space and that forum for TWS members to collaborate on different issues. And in this case, building public support for wildlife management uh, and wildlife management programs and conservation more broadly. Uh, they provide um, opportunities for exchange and advancing of ideas in elementary and secondary curricula, the very question you just asked earlier, um, development of innovative outreach programs and kind of an infusion of critical learning skills in conservation education uh, and teaching techniques as well. So um, I know they they have a webinar series. Uh, I, I, I have not fully engaged with that working group. But they are tackling this very issue of, you know, is conservation and environmental uh, issues developed well enough in school curricula? They're getting, they're developing uh, opportunities and tools to communicate with different publics. So that's a lot of what they're working on. And I think, um, you know, they're going to be really critical into the future. And it's one of the working groups that I, I look forward to getting uh, to closer to working closer with and getting to know better in the future. What do you think are some of the major barriers uh, or challenges for early career professionals in this field? You know, there's quite a number of barriers and challenges. I experienced them certainly when I was uh, younger and, and in my early career as a professional. But I think, you know, today, some of our challenges are, challenges are, are the same and yet they're more more complicated by more people. We have, uh, we broke 336 million, probably at 337 million now, uh, people here in the U.S. We're approaching 9 billion worldwide, and there's just more and more pressure and stress on habitats, the, the need for resources, and all of the things that we might uh, think of being real challenges to the profession itself. Uh, and it's all exacerbated by climate change, of course. 
So those aren't necessarily barriers, but they're they're incredible challenges that we're facing today and, and early career professionals are going to have to face in the future. You know, I think the wildlife profession is, you know, at a at a a crossroads, if you will, uh, where we're trying to figure out what those what those barriers are and challenges and how we can address them for the future. And that's you know that's part of my longer term vision is making sure that our professionals are in fact equipped to, to deal with tomorrow's challenges. Um, you know, some of the barriers to entry I, it used to be anyway finding a job, and that doesn't seem to be a big barrier anymore. What I'm hearing very consistently across uh, various wildlife agencies at the state and provincial level in Canada and across our, our federal land management agencies, across universities. Uh, time and time again, I just keep hearing that they're having trouble finding uh, uh, work. And this is kind of a post-COVID thing where uh, they're just uh, not finding work, uh, finding people to apply for jobs or fewer people applying for jobs. There's a lot of openings right now. Um, so getting a job used to be a barrier, but I'm not thinking that's the barrier now. Um, some of the, you know, uh, barriers to entry for, um, uh, you know, the, in a diversity context, some of these things I just don't know myself personally. I happen to be a, a, a late career white male in the profession, and I need to understand from other communities what those barriers are and how the wildlife society can, in fact, remove those barriers. Because everybody should have equal opportunity should they decide they want to be a wildlife biologist uh, we need to we need to eliminate those barriers. But I think, you know, just challenges to the field are are pretty similar to what they've always been, yet more complicated by more people. Um, crazy politics here in the U.S., as most people around the globe have been watching. Um, and it's almost embarrassing to even address. But it's we just have crazy politics right now. And it's hard to to work the policy front to make sure that wildlife and wild and wildlife habitats are have the right policies in place. Um, and then, you know, just a, a, a society that seemingly is more and more detached from nature. And it, that gets at that whole concept of, of ecological literate citizens that n don't just watch Animal Planet or National Geographic. They actually get other information to inform themselves about, about wildlife and wildlife conservation. The Wildlife Society also runs their uh, Leadership Institute. So could you elaborate a bit on this? Yeah, this is a really nice program that started back in 2006. Um, and the idea was to bring in uh, and provide a select group of, of individuals of 10 to 15 or so promising TWS members with leadership training. Um, so the, the Leadership Institute uh, and kind of part of the problem was it's projected that maybe 70% or so of the current leaders in the wildlife profession are, are projected to be retiring. Um, I'll be in that group here in about five to five to eight years, probably. Um, but the responsibility of preparing the membership to meet those pressing needs that we've been talking about and be well prepared as professionals and leaders uh, was kind of the, the goal of the Institute to begin with. But the idea is to is to select ten or fifteen promising members. These are early career professionals that are just right out of school, uh, up to about three years or so out of school, two or three years out of school, 
Uh, and they can be either undergraduates or graduate uh, students uh, that are working full time in the profession. So they've just emerged from school and they're entering in. Um, and this year we saw uh, some of the uh, most, uh, uh, the, we saw the most applicants in, in the history of the Leadership Institute. So there's a lot of interest in it. But that's the idea is to give them the leadership training uh, and skills that they need. And we are but one of many leadership uh, opportunities and for training. But the idea, of course, is to is to get people excited and interested in the profession and to become leaders in the society, whether that's at a state chapter level, a section level, or ultimately uh, uh, be, be part of our, our council and, and be leaders at the, at the broader interna international level as well. Could you also talk about the student chapters of the Wildlife Society and what broader impact have they had so far? Sure. Students are, are very critical to the Wildlife Society. We've long had student chapters, and this is, um, this, this is something that I personally did not have an opportunity to engage in when I was in school. The, one of the colleges I went to didn't even have a student chapter at that time. But I had good mentorship uh, through my uh, my professors that that when I asked how can I be more successful, um, I was immediately told to join the Wildlife Society and be active and engaged. And I think what the student chapters offer is an opportunity for those that are in school to not only build their own community but to engage with the broader professional community. We take the we take our students very serious and our early career professionals and one of the key things the wildlife society provides is a network, a family, a a, a, a social group if you will, not just for friends but for for, for professional development problem solving, networking, all of those kinds of things. I have a network of friends and colleagues that I've developed over the last, you know, three and a half decades that I still talk to today and and try to resolve problems and call them. And it all started by meeting them at a wildlife society meeting. So that student chapter uh, engagement, which is extremely strong, and it's just been getting stronger and stronger I kind of mentioned my own experience that I didn't engage at, at the student level, but boy, have I watched that increase over my time as in, in the career, in my career and with the wildlife society. And it's doing nothing but strengthening the wildlife society and developing our future leaders uh, with those opportunities that the students have to engage with one another and, and with the professionals that they're going to be, uh, that they're going to be seeking mentoring and, and other advice from. So lots of good opportunities. Um, so now let's move on to some of the work the Wildlife Society has done with policymaking. So recently, the uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act was in discussion. Could you elaborate a bit on this act and what is the current status? Sure. Um, so just for a little background, um, our policy program has been in, in play for a long time. And we set policy priorities. Obviously, you can't do everything all at once, um, especially with a small staff. So we work with our council, and our council is um, represented by eight different voting districts, one in Canada, seven in the U.S., and then um, our executive committee, which is the incoming vice president, president-elect, president, and um, immediate past president. That's kind of our, our council 
and our staff work to put together what they think are the top policy priorities. Council approves those, and then we work mostly on those priorities. Doesn't mean that we don't engage in other opportunities. And the Recovering America's Wildlife Act was one of those top priorities over the last several years. Um, what the Recovering America's Wildlife Act uh, was, was an opportunity to fund the implementation of what are called state wildlife uh, action plans. It's There's a little bit of history here, but back in the, I believe the 1980s, uh, early 90s, there was legislative put legislation put forward to fund non-game wildlife management programs. I'll, I'll be very brief and high level on this. That legislation would tax, would have taxed backpacks and tents and binoculars and all kinds of things and put that tax toward uh, wildlife conservation and particularly non-game wildlife conservation. That legislation did not pass, but what did come out of that was a funding source through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to fund what are called state wildlife action plans. And those action plans are geared largely toward the breadth of wildlife in any given uh, state here in the United in the U.S. Uh, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act was a very specific piece of legislation that originally the way that was going to be paid for um, was through uh, receipts coming from offshore oil and gas development. Um, that was not a favorable solution when our Congress changed hands back in 2020. Um, so they started looking for different ways to pay for it and ultimately landed uh, or tried to land on some fees and taxing and such on cryptocurrency. Uh, that didn't play out very well with some of the uh, uh, things that changed in the crypto markets. And they're still uh, struggling to figure out how you'll pay for it. Uh, in the policy world, we say you got to have a pay for, which means it can't just keep adding to the deficit. We have to be able to cover it somehow. And the original thought was oil and gas receipts. When the when the Congress uh, changed hands to the Democrats, um, there were some leaders that didn't want to perpetuate or depend on oil and gas development, uh, given the climate crises and our switch to more renewables. So. Uh, a little bit uh, in the weeds on the history there, but that's kind of how it all developed. And the reason it, it 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 basically did not pass as a standalone bill, but what was attempted was to try to put that Recovering America's Wildlife Act as part of a large budget package that was passed. We called it the omnibus package. Our Congress in the United States has to do two things and two things alone. They have to pass a, a defense authorization bill to fund the to fund the military, and they have to pass a budget to keep the the uh, the federal government running, and so that's where they was trying to they were we were trying to get the Recovering America's Wildlife Act passed, um, and it just failed. It just didn't make it through that um, through that process, and became a sacrificial lamb, if you will, in the whole you know the whole bartering of policy between the two the two um, the two parties and and the the three branches of government that we have. So, interestingly enough, and very timely uh, with our podcast here, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act has now been reintroduced uh, in a bipartisan manner, and um, that's about as far as it's gotten. There haven't been 
there hasn't been much activity on the Recovering America's Wildlife Act as it was just reintroduced uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we played very heavy in the original version of, uh, we actually played very heavy way back when in the 1980s, 90s on the original legislation looking to better fund non-game conservation, um, non, uh, non-game wildlife uh, conservation. But uh, we played uh, real heavy in the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And when I say that, we did um, visits to senators and congressional members. We worked with our partners to educate the public. We worked um, by writing writing constitu- by writing letters and having constituents write letters in support. Because the key thing about policy is you have to have um, legislative champions and they listened to their members. So we did a lot of work trying to educate people to call their senators and congressmen and women to support this act. And ultimately work in the, the White House here in the US anyway, uh, to, to sign off on the legislation. So we're kind of back to square one with Recovering America's Wildlife Act and we'll be playing, it's a priority for us again this year and we'll continue to, to participate in that process to try and get it passed. That's great. And what are some other policies you guys are working on? Yeah, so um, this year we decided that it was time to really focus a lot on renewable energy policy. Um, that's a priority for us. And, you know, it, there is, as we know, um, fossil fuels contribute to climate change and, the, and there's a, a, a call for reduction of use of fossil fuels and and switching to renewables, but there's no free lunch, right? Uh, Renewables have impacts too, and the transmission lines that need to be put in to allow for the development of renewable energy. So we wanna keep an eye on that and make sure that wildlife and the trade-offs for wildlife and habitat are part of the conversation and understood during decision-making. The Wildlife Society is not opposed to any form of energy, we just, believe that it should be cited well, and we can't develop all places all the time. Um, There are places that are too special to develop anything, whether it's fossil fuels, uh, mining of critical minerals or or renewable energy. So we want responsible uh, development uh, that that looks looks to wildlife conservation um, and follows the science. So that's a priority for us. In the United States, we have um, uh, a very interesting piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill has a lot of conservation entitlements to it, which basically incentivizes private lands conservation. So we have another priority centered on private land conservation. And that particular effort is ongoing right now. This year, we have to pass a new Farm Bill. We do one every five years. The last Farm Bill had $30 billion in conservation titles. That's a lot of money for conservation. And it doesn't all play out the same. Some of it's for um, uh, permanent easements. Some of it's for uh, conservation reserve program dollars, which basically is set aside the tilling of land on private lands and allowing native grasses or planted grasses to come back. And that provides good wildlife habitat. There's just a whole suite of of conservation uh, opportunities for private landowners. And this farm bill uh, gives them some money to do that. So it incentivizes conservation. And we're looking for other opportunities uh, for private land conservation as well. So those are some of the top priorities we're working on 
in the coming year and keeping our eyes out for for other things like a, a broad sweeping climate change bill we haven't we don't we haven't seen that we've seen executive orders from the president and and a few things here and there on climate but there's no sweeping climate change legislation but we would certainly play in that if it came about so my last couple of questions for you so how can individuals contribute to the wildlife society so our um our society is made up very largely of wildlife biologists but it also is an open society so one thing people can join um, that comes with a variety of benefits, including access to our journals, but also our communications. Uh, that's one way to join. And if anyone out there is in conservation, we'd strongly encourage you to, to join. Um, but we, we get donations from our, our members. Um, they actually donate money uh, to us to help us do our mission critical work. But people that aren't members of the society, they just like wildlife and they like wildlife science and conservation and knowing that wildlife professionals are are uh, doing good things to keep wildlife and wildlife habitats out on the landscape. Uh, anyone can donate. You just go to our website at uh, wildlife.org and uh, there's a donate button. That's that's a way to contribute. And then, of course, uh, if you're a member, if you are a member, there's all kinds of ways to contribute to volunteering your time and service, uh, providing expertise uh, in training our new uh, new generation of wildlife professionals or even uh, uh, existing mid-career and late-career professionals. Sometimes we need training too, but there's all kinds of ways to contribute financially and just uh, uh, being a, a support part of the support system and the education system to help inspire and enable our, our professionals. And my final question is, what has been your biggest learning from your conservation career? Well, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is that policy in wildlife conservation and science is far more important than most biologists actually think or, or believe. And I think largely most of us that got into the wildlife career and, and, and profession wanted to, you know, chase animals around the mountain and capture them and, and put radio collars on them and follow them around and do habitat work and just do the field work and not, not fully realizing the conservation. And one of the things I've learned is that conservation is a big umbrella and you have to have just like a house, you have a you have a roof, and that would be uh, a metaphor for conservation. The foundation is science, but the walls that hold that structure up are um, policy and uh, education and outreach and uh, management actions, and and there are probably a few other things that could be considered kind of the pillars to hold it up. But I think. Just knowing that policy and uh, influences almost everything that we do in the wildlife profession is something that I learned later in my career. I've also learned how critically important it is to have an educated public. We talked about this quite a bit, and this is something I didn't fully appreciate until later in my career. Um, that you know, if you don't have an educated public, they may or an apathetic public, worse yet. Um, they may just not care enough. And in a, de in a democracy, at least here in the U.S., where, where people vote politicians in and out, 
um, they better care about conservation. And if they don't, we may not have conservation the way uh, the science suggests it needs to, to develop or the way we as professionals feel it needs to develop. So, But I've also learned over my career that we can tackle these challenges. I, I would remind anyone that back in the turn of the century, at least here in, the, in North America, a whole lot of species that today are thriving and almost overabundant in a lot of cases were on the brink of extinction. They were that close. And in the early 1900s, had there been an Endangered Species Act, at least here in the U.S. or, or even other countries, you know, that the, a lot of those common species would have been listed as threatened and endangered. And we, we have success stories. We brought back forest carnivores. We brought back large predators, um, at least uh, there that's a that's a, a a situation around the world where we've seen coexistence with large predators. Those are successes we should never forget. So as daunting as some of the challenges are, I have great faith in our profession and our professionals and society uh, if we can get them behind all of this to, to take, tackle some of these challenges. And those are kind of some of the things that I've learned. And don't ever want anybody to forget that that uh, we 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 have had major challenges across the history of wildlife conservation, and and we can we can tackle those challenges. Uh, that is the last question for my podcast. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely. Hopefully that was helpful. <laughs>